Last week, one thing I forgot to ask you about in the Moses and the Joseph section was whether or not you ever put captions on the movies. And I was wondering, is Joe a captions person? Well, that's a great question. I'm not going to lie. I go back and forth because sometimes it depends on what you're watching. Because if you're watching like a comedy bit, no captions. Not at all. Because I, I feel like it ruins the punchline and the the severity of the joke because you're not expecting it. Um, and if you put subtitles on, you are, and then it's just not funny. So with stuff like The Office or New Girl or, or funny things like that that are meant to be comedic, I don't usually. But with stuff like, like I'm rewatching The Last Dance right now, like which is a documentary, and I'm using captions because they help me. I, I don't even know why I use them because I'm sure I could do without them, but I do. And so there I am. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you because we were watching The Good Place and that cannot have captions because you'll just read ahead and ruin the joke. And not only will you read ahead and ruin the joke, but you will miss out on the beautiful, carefully crafted and carefully constructed comedic timing as created by the people who who made the movie. You cannot have the captions on because they will they'll just mess everything up for comedies. But I think for musicals such as the ones we were watching, it's actually really good for a couple of reasons because you can know all the song lyrics because sometimes people mumble and the song lyrics are fast and you can't quite know what's going on. So it's great to have the song lyrics. It's just like, you know, you're in church, you can just sing along all you want and it's great. And for non-comedies, I always like to have them on because my brain is kind of stressed to not use them because I'm a very visual learner and I tried to start watching the movies without them. And I was wondering, why is this movie so hard to watch and why is my brain <laughs> shutting down and can't understand anything? Oh, duh, it's because captions are off. So, yeah, I always turn the captions on unless it's funny and it will ruin the joke and then turn them off. Yes. In a room of people, I petition for the captions to be on. It's like, all in favor, raise your hand. And then if I have the remote, I'm just making a unilateral decision. <laughs> no, because they're helpful. They are. I don't know why, but they're kind of like a crutch. I just hate to admit it. I, I don't know. I, I don't see the harm. So why not? Well, one thing I don't put the captions on for uh, is a YouTube creator by the name of Louis Zong, I believe is how you say his last name. He is a creator that I kind of stumbled upon a couple of years ago. Uh, he got really popular for, if you've ever heard Ghost Choir, it's like a jazzy quartet song that sounds like ghosts singing. It's very it's very sweet, very cool. Um, but that's kind of when I, I found him, and then ever since then I've just very much enjoyed his content because like for instance right there's two songs that i'm thinking of that he because he's a musician uh and so he wrote one song called um asymptotic which is i, I didn't know this but it's a math term and it means it's like if you're looking at an xy graph and two lines it's sort of like they're parallel but they're always going in opposite directions it's hard to explain, but if you just look at the video, I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes. It, it makes sense. But he uses math terms all throughout the song to get to the point of like, it's like a it's like a sad, not a breakup song necessarily, but just like the lines that can't meet, like they're just never supposed to be together. Like it's sort of that sort of thing. Um, and then like, so he makes songs like that. And then in addition to that, he does like these very, very cool learning videos. Like he's got one about chord personalities. Uh, it's about the different ways that chords can sound, and it uses the Roman numerals for chords, so that, like, you know, is, is helpful for people that don't maybe, you know, necessarily understand those yet, like, uh, and he's got another one about how to use different chords to, like, make a melody sound different, which is super cool, and then he's also got one that's, like, or he's got two, actually, one is, like, it's, like, in the style of Undertale, uh, like, 8-bit video game, um, one is, like, 
a funk dojo where he like teaches you how to play funk chords on the guitar and then another is like the like western so like he teaches you how to like write a ballad um musically that is he's such a cool content creator because not only is he a musician but he's also an artist and so almost like all of his content looks really cool as well as sounds really cool so i think everyone should listen to him zachary you should definitely give it a shot and and tell us what you think next week yeah this looks like a good channel to check out Side note, these people are so annoying. Oh, I'm good at art and music. Get out of here. <laughs> no need to shove it in my face. It's so impressive to me because he obviously understands music and also like has the ability to like represent it visually so well. It's so cool. Yeah, because watching the asymptotic video right now, he has the music ability. He has like the poetry and songwriting gene as well. And then he has the making cool art and making cool videos, Gene. Exactly. So, yeah, I think I might as well quit my songwriting career. I haven't even started it, but <laughs> I better, better quit it. He's got several albums on Spotify that I've been listening to, which is like, I hesitate to say lo-fi, but like just sort of his style of music. And you'll understand when you listen to it. One of my other favorite content creators on YouTube is Vsauce. And I think we both watch Vsauce. We talked about this uh, in the previous episode, but there's one guy, they do research and they put it all together in like a sciencey video. So they've got, it's so, it, there's such a wide variety of topics. Like It's almost impossible to explain. <laughs> yeah, you just have to go watch them. They're, they're so cool. They talk about... Uh, I think in one he talks about how like to disappear, like how to drop off the map. In one he talks about why do we wear clothes. In one he talks about like did history really happen. Like just kind of thought-provoking questions that are very, very, very interesting to me. I, I think I found him maybe in like 2014 or 15 or something. But regardless... Very, very cool channel. One of my favorites on there is a, a video about Juvenoia. Well, I think the video is just called Juvenoia. If you haven't seen it or heard of this guy, please go check it out slash check him out. He's such a cool uh, content creator slash the team, whatever. I wanted to talk about this video because we have been kind of talking about how to remember the past with your life archival stuff. Yes. And this video talks in great detail about the ways in which we remember the past. Um, more specifically, I think one of the points he makes is how we are nostalgic and we remember the past generally as better than it actually was. I don't know. Do you have experience with this like phenomenon of thinking that your your generation was better and this present one is maybe not as good? Like, do you feel that way? <laughs> so, kind of. I think every generation, no matter what, even in the Adam and Eve days, thought that their generation was pretty good. And that, you know, the one older, oh, they're kind of old and set in their way, so they're not necessarily as good as they could be. And the younger ones are garbage. They don't know anything. They're those dumb people in their TikTok. And the thing is, you feel so unique and cool for having these feelings about how the generation just above you, they're not the best for XYZ reasons. And the generation below you, they're not the best for ABC reasons. But then you realize that through history, no matter how far back you go, every single generation has felt that exact same way. Mm -hmm. The younger generation has newspapers, so they're destroying their attention span with these newspapers and these like quick headlines that are, you know, taking all their time. Or comics that are making it so that they can't read books and they are focusing only on the pictures. No matter what you do, each generation thinks they're pretty good and the ones around them are, are pretty bad. Mm -hmm. I do feel this way, but I also know that it's just sort of a, an illusion of the mind and I don't want to give it too much thought. So when it does creep in, I am usually able to dispel it with logic. I think one one part in the video, instead of hearing conversation, you'll see everyone's head is buried in a book. And it was like a critique 
of the attention span that people like the attention that people gave to books, which now you could say the same thing about phones. And so this, you know, the previous generation was like, oh, they're reading too much. And now we look at reading as like an educational, like healthy thing. But at the time, it was just a thing that like it was new and it was weird. And the generation that had come before was like, we don't like this. You know, I mean, look, I don't like TikTok. I think that TikTok is dumb, but that probably just comes from my juvenile, my ability to look back at what I had and be like, well, I made it through. So that must be better than what they're doing. So I'm going to do it the way that I did it. It's a quote from a newspaper. And I believe it's from like the late 1800s, probably. Every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that came before and wiser than the one that comes after it. But it's true. And we all remember the the good old days, even though they weren't that great, as better than they were because we only remember the good parts and even the bad parts we get nostalgic for. I think he talks about that too. And we all believe that we're somehow different than the ones that came before. Maybe I'm being too cynical. What do you think? <laughs> no, no, you're not being too cynical. Because the other day I was thinking that... Okay, I just barely missed the age of Discord and TikTok. And by the age of Discord, I mean, I think there was a time when gamers just were on Skype all day and then Skype kind of died, unfortunately. Rip Skype. So nowadays they use Discord to, they just hang out there all day. And by that, I mean my brothers and a few other people I know. And they are in voice chat all day and playing games and streaming them to the people in the server all day. And I just barely missed, like, by a hair, the age of Discord and TikTok is kind of what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. This is where my own cognitive bias kind of sneaks in because I say, well, I grew up primarily using cds and an ipod with a click wheel and then my own cognitive bias say well that was just the right amount of technology like my time on youtube it was this certain way it didn't have the very aggressive algorithm it had very specific channels that was just the right way for a person to grow up you know you could listen to music but it wasn't too advanced it wasn't like the algorithms weren't trying to get in your head and make you have a short attention span (laughs) again algorithm often gets abused i will say that but you know what i'm saying the predictive Mm -hmm. the predictive services were not getting in my head i had just the right amount of technology which is why I became the great person I am today. And every generation thinks that because they'll say, oh, Discord, that was just the right amount for me and my friends to get together. But it wasn't these VR glasses that are making you (laughs) stare at the wall all day and not talk to your family. And then the VR glasses people, oh, the VR glasses were just right before the brain chip. Now no one talks to anyone because they're just brain chipping all day. And then you can literally draw a straight line in any direction and get this. So no matter what you do, your own brain is going to kick in and say, my childhood was just right and had just the right amount of advancements and everyone else is garbage. Like I wish that I had grown up in like the 80s or something and that probably comes from a skewed a very skewed view of the 80s because the 80s probably are not how i would like them to be if i was there there's no way that they're as good as i'm thinking that they were but i still think that because i just want to you know it's like it's just my brain is like this is how i think of this and this is you can't do anything about it you know what what's the scariest thing about it i think is that it's observable you can see when people ha- like are being this way and that's sort of i don't know i think we should be maybe more accepting of of the the generations to come and 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 maybe a little bit less harsh on the you get it just be nice to people you know what i mean yeah, what's kind of funny about this is that you can see your brain malfunction in real time. Yep. You can watch as the biases kick in and you 100% believe them, but you can also step back for a second and say, eh, I don't actually believe them, which is a lot of the points of his videos are pointing out things that are clearly your brain not understanding what's going on, but yet you think it's true, which I'll give some examples in a minute. But just to touch on what you said about loving the 90s, 
it's kind of interesting. I think let's blame like the media. Everyone always blames the media about making the 80s and even like the 50s and generally any time starting with one nine seem really good, even if it wasn't really good. And this is nothing new because Back to the Future was made in the 80s, but it was shown as a more idealized version of the 50s. And then once we got to the years beginning with 2-0, we made Stranger Things, which looked like it was made in the 80s, even though it wasn't. And it was a more idealized version of the 80s. Let's erase all of the things that we'd rather forget. Like the malls weren't really that clean and colorful and nice. Like, sure, they were fun and we liked them because we were eight years old. But also, were they that good? Like if you revisited them now, everything's probably smaller and, and not that exciting. So this is not to, you know, this is not a down necessarily meant to be a downer. If you grew up in that time period, I'm sure it was really fun. And please re- keep remembering it, it being really fun. But <laughs> the question is, how do we show it? What happens in like, oh, 2045, if we have movies about, let's say like the global pandemic and it was in 2020, what if we have like an idealized version where families were getting together on their computers and, mm. and, and only taking the good side of things and always conveniently forgetting the bad side of things. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say the conveniently forgetting of the bad side of things should be wrong because how else can we survive as humans without having an existential crisis it's just a good thing to note that the past isn't always as it appears yep exactly and and i think to be aware of that is is probably a good first step definitely a good video check it out if you haven't another point he brings up that is quite good and i'm not going to rip off all his points you have to watch the video but one that really got me thinking was talking about the different ways we use time so it can either be time feels long in the moment but short in your memory Mm. which for example that could be like a long car ride oh this is such so long and then you remember it as blip we were in the car for 12 to 16 hours and that's all there is to it blip i don't remember anything the opposite thing is you remember it taking a long time even though it's short that that one's a rarer case i think it might be if you're Mm -hmm. really having fun so you remember every detail maybe Another popular one is you remember it being short and it felt short. Again, if you're having fun doing stuff that oftentimes both seem to go quickly and you'll remember it going fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Same thing for long, long. If something's just straight up boring, you'll remember it being long. <laughs> but the most interesting use case here is the short, short, because that's like if you're watching TV, it's short in the moment and you're not remembering anything but like a blink of an eye. And that's what he calls something that kind of sent chills down my spine. She's burning the candle at both ends. Oh. You're not in fully enjoying your life in the moment. And you're not fully enjoying the memory when you look past on it. It's just that where it happened at the time. I don't know. It's just gone. Two hours, click, all gone. Uh, don't, don't, don't do that. Like, please don't do the math on how many hours you have in your life and how many are being completely wasted. Please don't do that because you will not, you will not be happy. But trust me when I say that, that you don't want to do that math. You don't want to know those numbers. But it's a good thing to keep in mind that if media is really good, okay, go for it. But I think he has like kind of an underlying cautionary tale about short, short kind of experiences. That is deeply concerning. Uh, I agree with you. Wow. Yeah, that one hurts a little bit. (laughs) Okay, before we move off the Vsauce thing, you mentioned a while back his video, Did History Really Happen? That brought me to another thing that isn't as scary, but it's just kind of fun to mess around and think about, which is he touched on something called last Thursdayism. Mm -hmm. It's possible that the entire world could have been created last Thursday. And you might say, well, how do I have memories that extend way past last Thursday? Well, it could be that when everything was created at once last Thursday, you were created with the memories of a whole nother life that had happened in the past. In fact, we can't prove that everything wasn't created one second ago. And we just blipped into existence making this podcast with the memory of what we already talked about. Mm-hmm. And then we can't prove that once you're listening to it, you just have memory of listening to a podcast and you just blipped into existence right now at this exact point. It's not that I believe that this is actually happening. It's just that it's one of those things that cannot be disproved no matter how hard you try. The other side of that is that you also can't prove it that it's right. (laughs) You can't prove it wrong, but you can't prove it right, which is kind of funny. So yeah, it's an interesting concept for sure. And it's fun to think about, Um, but it kind of makes my brain hurt a little bit, sort of like Tenet. 
one thing we've talked about on the show quite a bit, almost as much as YouTube, is Enneagram, Enneagram types. And I'd honestly be curious to ask you your personal thoughts on this, because I have many opinions, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. But the question is, why has Enneagram become more popular in recent years? It went from no one's ever heard of this. Part of it is because it's a young system and it was only invented somewhat recently-ish. But why do you think it's gotten just so popular? I have my own theories. Joe, what are your own theories? Oh, boy. Well, let me start by saying I used to be an avid Myers-Briggs person. I don't even know why. It's not like I understood it at all. Like I, <laughs> I, I understood the concept and I liked, I think it was because it was the first time when I was really introduced to, mm-hmm. probably less than a year later, I was introduced to the Enneagram and I was like, numbers, that's weird. Why are there nine of them? Ugh. Too many. Yeah. And I was like, that's weird. They're not as descriptive. I don't like it. As I kind of got into it, I realized that it did make more sense to me at least. And it was easier to understand and I liked it better. And so I think that that could be why it's become so popular in recent years. Also, just the reason I feel like most personality tests are so popular nowadays is because everybody's a narcissist and everybody loves to know about themselves. (laughs) No, the existential episode. Exactly. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm just in a mood. (laughs) No, but I I think everybody wants to know everything about themselves and they want to tell everybody everything about themselves and they want to, you know, so, and I'm not exempt from that. I, I have done that before too. So I think that's why personality tests are popular in general. Specifically, I think Enneagram is more popular because it's easier to understand. It's nine things. Truthfully, you only have to know what type you are. You don't. There is ways, technically speaking, there's 27 types, and then each of those types can have one of two wings. So really, there's like 54 different things that you could be. Yes. Then you have to take into account the head and the heart and the mind triads and the gut and the blah, 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 and the fear and the shame and the anger, whatever. There's so much room to grow in it and grow in your understanding of it. But at its base, somebody can say, I think I'm a two and I'll go, okay, great. Like I know generally what I need to know about you to be your friend, you know, and it just helps me to like understand the internal Uh, I I heard somebody say once, I can't remember which was which, but they said that one of them helped that person understand the interior motivations and one helped them understand the exterior. That's my opinion on both of them. My own opinion is almost exactly what you said. The Enneagram has become more popular because it is A, easier to understand. B, there are less types in general. Instead of 16, there are really nine. Yes, if you do the math with wings there, you can get to like there's 108 with tri-types and so on, whatever. Mm -hmm. But there's basically nine types and you can get familiar with them after quite a short time. Really, the final reason that it's gotten popular is just it's more marketable. It's easier to have nine things on a slide with, with cute graphics than 16 things on a slide with cute graphics. And as well, it's nicer to have the the whole one syllable like, oh, yeah, I'm a two instead of like ESFP. Yeah. <laughs> You're always going to have four syllables versus literally always having one syllable. So yep. I think at the end of the day, it is more marketable for those Instagram influencers out there. Yep. There are so, so many content creators that make stuff for the Enneagram. It is absurd to me. (laughs) I just can't get over it. Tell me a bit more about when you were interested in Myers-Briggs and when you were obsessed with it. I don't think I knew you were obsessed with it per se. 
probably because I wasn't quote unquote obsessed with it. I just didn't like, I didn't know that there was anything else. And so I remember one time at this small group that I was trying out, they had us take it and I was like, Whoa, this is telling me things about myself. Oh my gosh. Really. There truly was no reason other than that. It was the first one I was exposed to that I got into it. And I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't even really into it. I did try when I would meet a person, I'd be like, okay, introverted or extroverted like i try to figure it out you know yes i still do that with enneagram types i i try to type people before they tell me i don't tell them that i'm doing that no that'd be socially awkward but it is fun to do this is our secret viewer uh don't tell anybody that i that i typed yeah, them. when you meet joe in person he's going hmm e hmm s <laughs> yes well now it's now it's the numbers but i used to do it like that which is a lot more time consuming which again i that's why i think i like the enneagram more yeah i think it is easier to make snap judgments if i see somebody get angry i'll be like an eight and that's obviously like it does not have to be what they are they could be a two in stress or just someone who's angry <laughs> literally every time gets angry exactly so it's not an exact science and it all depends on your motivations internally and i can't see those so like there's no way that somebody could type somebody else you have to do that yourself which is why i recommend instead of taking a test doing the research and figuring it out and coming to a conclusion on your own. I'm always tempted to do that. Someone's angry. Oh, they're an eight. Someone is creative and made a bunch of paintings. Oh, they're a four. Exactly. I assumed that with sleeping at last, but more research showed that he is supposedly. He's a nine. Yep. Guess he's just a healthy one who's able to tap into the energies of the other types. And I should not assume that just because you know how to make good music, <laughs> that does not mean you're for. So I'd like to get into why MBTI, Myers-Briggs type indicator, is objectively better, in my opinion. Part of it is sort of understanding how modern MBTI is seen versus how old school MBTI even came into be. So I'll give an extremely brief history lesson. I'm not a fan of history, but I'll give you just enough for context. So what, how we know it in the modern days is generally through a little site called 16personalities.com. And that is where you can go and see these cute cartoon characters. You can take a test that's taken by millions of people. And, you know, the number is always counting up into the millions and millions. And that way you can find out what type you are just by going through five to ten minutes of questions. It pops out a little thing that says you are 47% introverted and the rest percent extroverted and 59% sensing and the rest in, and the rest intuition and so on. All the system is is there are four slots. Each slot has two possibilities. Slot one, you have your temperament in the sense of introverted or extroverted. Everyone knows what that is. That's become very popular. Everyone's pretty familiar with that. Kind of the most abstract slot is the next slot, which is sensing versus intuition. Are you more someone who's based in concrete facts, or are you more someone who's big picture, sort of reading in between the lines, trying to make stuff up out of thin air and draw connections? That, that one's a little bit hard to explain, but hopefully I did an okay job there. The next one is thinking or feeling. Of course, it's easy to stereotype here. Basically, it is, do you do what is objectively right in your eyes or do you do what is subjectively right in your eyes is kind of the idea there mm. lastly you have judging versus perceiving it's tempting to say again stereotype and say judging is you know judging others pointing the fingers all it really is is judging wants to change the world around them and perceiving is kind of just there to watch the world around them in other words judging kind of sacrifices present happiness for the future and perceiving kind of sacrifices future happiness for the present in a way because again they're just there to watch while the judging people are sort of trying to shape everything and get they can sometimes maybe get bent out of shape because they're trying to actively change things and you know pros and cons so on that's the other thing there is no good type or bad type as, as much as people like to stereotype my type's the best no my type's the best well good news every type is the best if if every type wasn't good, we would be in trouble, but thankfully we're all different. Otherwise, things would get boring. That is a brief look at MBTI. 16 personalities adds another thingy at the end, which makes there be 32 personalities. It adds assertive versus turbulent, A versus T. That is exactly what it sounds like. Assertive people are 
sure of themselves, turbulent people are unsure of themselves. And you might say, well, isn't it better to be assertive? Well, supposedly, I don't know how much I believe this because it seems slightly <laughs> made up, but turbulent people are more likely to, because they're turbulent, they want to go with self-improvement and assertive people are less likely to improve themselves because they're, they're already happy. That's sort of something I think 16 personality just sort of added on. Mm. So where the system originally came from is Catherine Cook Briggs and Isabel Myers back in 1928. And they were actually building upon the ideas of Carl, Carl Jung, who was a Swiss psychiatrist guy. <laughs> he created ideas that are still known to this day of introversion and extroversion, aka introversion is when you need to be away from people to recharge your energy. Extroversion is when you need to be with people to recharge your energy. That is one of his main ideas that has made its way all the way to the modern day so that when you're doing like leadership training and so on, it's like how to <laughs> make friends with an extrovert, how to be nice to the introvert in your life. Like it's kind of overused and maybe not fully understood, but that's all you need to know is that introversion is recharge away from people. Extroversion is recharge with people that's all there is to it the mbti system again these these people Catherine cook briggs and isabel myers oh look put their last names together you get the myers briggs type indicator they're essentially doing research on top of him and i'm re actually reading their book which i don't recommend it's one of those books that i'm reading but no one else should be reading it it was written by isabel and her son peter because Catherine cook briggs was no longer alive and peter is the only one of them living today but it talks about how the system works and how it functions. And it's kind of boring, but it's interesting for me just because I like to get in the weeds on this, even though I sort of am skipping around a lot to get to the good stuff. <laughs> so what they did is they said, let's build on the introversion extroversion model. Let's build these things called cognitive functions. And there are eight of them. And this is where 16 personalities doesn't actually go into a lot of detail. 16 personalities is just, here are the letters. Either you are introverted or extroverted, either you like intuition or sensing, so on, and then goes through all of them. Strict Myers-Briggs says, you always prefer one or the other. 16 personality says, well, 37%, you prefer this. Because again, it's just preferences. Everyone does everything. But since everyone leans one way, 16 personality believes that it's like, all right, 51% introverted, 49% extroverted. The strict MBTI system would say, well, you always prefer one or the other. And it's not necessarily a matter of percentages. Anyway, just a different way of looking at it and kind of an interesting thing to point out. I'm personally with the original system on this one. The cognitive functions are kind of what's sitting behind the system. So in the thing, which will be in the show notes, it is a essentially look at what functions are behind each type. So take the INFP, what's in its driver's seat is introverted feeling. That's the function that it is pretty much in charge of its life. It's the biggest. Mm -hmm. Secondary function is extroverted intuition. And the third slot is introverted sensing. And in the final slot is extroverted thinking. So the first slot is and the second ones are going to be like the ones that are in, kind of in control of your life. The third one's kind of a bit more repressed. In fact, the third one's actually the most repressed. And the fourth one is all the way at the bottom. Why isn't the fourth one the most repressed, you say? Well, in times of stress, you actually will lead on that one because you're sort of getting turned upside down in a bit. It never gets a chance to get to the driver's seat when you're in stress, and it never gets a chance to get to the driver's seat normally. So that's kind of the one that you need to work to develop generally. If you are in a more unhealthy place, you can develop that one and become healthy. There's a really good descriptions online essentially about what all these cognitive functions means. Here's what introverted intuition is. Here's what introverted thinking is. Here's what introverted feeling is. So on all the way down the line. One interesting thing to note about it is that all extroverted types will have, of course, an extroverted function in the first position, because that is actually what makes them an extroverted type. They have a preference for an extroverted function. And then the opposite for an introverted, they'll have an introverted function in the, the first section because that is actually what makes them an introverted type. They have a preference for this introverted way of thinking and processing the world around them. For example, FI stands for introverted feeling, feeling introverted slash introverted oh. feeling. And NE stands for well, I intuition extroverted, but we just call it extroverted intuition. Okay, okay. Okay, but that makes sense. That makes more sense. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. 
So everyone's functions will alternate, either introverted, extroverted, introverted, extroverted, or extroverted, introverted, extroverted, introverted. This is probably way too much detail. My point is that once you get down to the weeds to kind of learn what the second layer is of these cognitive functions behind Myers-Briggs, it actually gets a lot more interesting because you can understand really some of the four main things that drive each type, sort of how those interact with each other. That can explain why some types get along well with others because maybe you can kind of cover for each other's weaknesses, but also be in tune on one of the functions so you can kind of get along well. Supposedly, INTJ and ENFP gets along pretty well because they're actually opposite on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Both of them are users of extroverted thinking, which can be helpful, and both of them are users of introverted feeling, which is useful, and then they have everything else opposite. A good mix of opposite and the same can make for a good match there. What is your Myers-Briggs? INTJ. Okay. What are you? Are you ENFP or INFP? So I haven't taken it since like... 2018 maybe so it's been like three years but the last one i got was infp i had gotten an enfp before but then i i I took it again and got an infp so that's kind of what i've stuck with i am introverted what's the n stand for intuition you have a preference for intuition and then feeling and then perceiving after your intuition intuition that's probably yeah no science i would just sort of type you as that Mm -hmm. if i had to type you something Yep, yep. So that is a look. It's sort of the system behind Myers-Briggs. If you're a visual learner, it's best to look this stuff up. So sorry for anything that was confusing or unclear. Google is your friend there. But my point is that if you are someone who is interested in, because that's the stage I was in, is I was just sort of interested in the base layer of it. If you want to take a bit of time to look at the, the cognitive functions that sort of power the entire test, they're just sort of hidden behind the scenes. If you want to take the cover off and sort of look at the engine below, if you will, that is something that I would definitely recommend doing. I follow this Instagram account called, I believe it's called Just My Enneatype. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come out with things that are you know, directed at each type. And so I I think, for instance, they did one on, they they do different series. And so one was, let me just see, like colors, right? So not, they they did misconceptions in colors. So like for a nine, right? Nine, they said nines are less like this, which is, then it just shows like gray. And, And then on the next page, it says more like, and then different shades of gray and then like different feelings to go with that. So, mm-hmm. Anyway, stuff they just they come out with and then they do that for all different all the different types. So they did one on which type identifies with what Myers Briggs letters. Yeah, I'm definitely curious about this. To be clear here, this is not a scientific study. They I think they polled people on Instagram. It's a scientific study of the Instagram community. The wider world, and eh, that can be debated. So don't take this as pure fact. Um so type nine identifies twenty-four percent as uh, INFJ, 23% as INFP, which is me, um, and then 15% as ISFJ. Let's see if they got you right, Zachary. Let's see. So most commonly, they are INFJs, and then INTJ, and then ISFJ, and then ISTJ. Yep, they got us right. So there you go. Good job, Instagram survey. Yes. So honestly, if if all of that was just a bunch of letters and numbers for you, I understand. Um, this is much more helpful to look at. So I'm sure we can link this page. Definitely look at the visual if you're confused. Uh because I know that I would probably be. One other thing when it comes to typing other people, one thing they talk about in the book, they say 16 types, that seems very difficult. How can you approach someone and guess what they are? One, just They're just one thing out of 16 types. How are you supposed to guess that? Isn't that hard? Well, not really, because you can generally tell introversion or extroversion <laughs> without too much trouble. So now mm-hmm. you're down to eight. And then, you know, generally judging and perceiving, you can get a good feel for as well. Okay, great. Now you're down to four. So anything you figure out cuts your options in half. 
And now you're working with a pool of four or two instead of a pool of 16 to eight, which is really good. So if you can figure out a couple of things there, you're going to be all set. The trouble comes when it's easy to confuse the introverted version of something with the extroverted version of that same thing. For example, ISTJ can easily be confused with ESTJ and so on, because when you think about it, the introverted function that's in the driver's seat of the ISTJ that is a function known only to them. It's an introverted function. It doesn't get exposed to the world. That's the whole thing here. So people will see the extroverted function in the second position and think, oh, that must be what they used to run their whole life. ESTJ. So there we go. So this is solved. Yep. In reality, that can be kind of a pitfall because I thought I was ENTJ for a while. So that's just something to keep in mind. It's easy to mistype the introverted functions versus the extroverted functions. So we're both introverts. Yes. And we talk on a podcast for hours and hours. Wow. Look at that. Podcasts are actually probably be pretty good. They don't actually have to be around other people. Exactly. No, and, and see, that's the thing I think that people misunderstand about introverts. It's not like we desire to be alone all the time. I, I say that, but I think a lot of people are aware. Like, it's just about how you recharge. That's the whole thing. Like, extroverts, they, like, find fulfillment and recharge in groups of people. And introverts are the opposite. They find life in just being alone, and, and that's how they recharge. So, like... For me, I'm, I would say I'm a very social person, but when I'm tired, I need to be alone and I need to be sitting somewhere and either reading a book or making music or just sitting, watching a TV show and just like vegetating. <laughs> That's how I recharge. Have you ever had anybody like think of you a certain way because of that? Yeah, that has happened. If it does come up, my personality type and so on, it'll be, what, you're introverted? I didn't know mm-hmm. that. And the thing is, well... Because my life is designed where I do get plenty of recharging time, by the time I am ready to talk to people, it's like, this is awesome. <laughs> I haven't talked to anyone in, in three days. This is great. So for that mm-hmm. reason, I think my life is set up in, in such a way that I'm always happy to see people not not sad to see them because there's plenty of rech- recharging going on in the mix. That's a great way to live, honestly. I, I kind of envy you on that level because <laughs> one of my favorite things about CSF is that it's convenient community and I can just be with people whenever Usually. Pros, convenient community. Cons, convenient community. Yes. And so that's great. But then also it's hard to get time just for myself and and not feel like I'm missing something or I don't know. it's, It's nice to have people, but it's also important to know when you need to not be around people because that's what's healthiest. One thing I thought through 2020, because so many people spent a good deal of their time alone, this is good. I could write a book on the following metaphor. (laughs) It's that batteries are not meant to be plugged in all the time. Your lithium ion battery is in great shape, but if you plug Mm. it in all the time, that it'll just get worn out if you leave it and plug it in for months and months. It's meant to be used, drain, use, drain. Yes, there's wear and tear on it, but that's what it's literally designed to do. It's a battery. Yep. And then yes, there are plenty of myths on lithium ion batteries that are (laughs) very, very misleading. It's like plug in your phone at night. Oh, don't plug in your phone tonight. Oh, charge it all the way up. Oh, don't charge it. Yeah, don't. Just use your phone how you feel like you need to use your phone. My point is, it's designed to be used just like you are designed to be used. Your social muscles are designed to be used and not to be used. Mm -hmm. And for everyone, you need a good, good balance. So try to do that. Part of the typing systems we just talked about involve knowing yourself and knowing the kind of the way your brain likes to behave. And nothing makes you come to terms with the weirdness of your own brain, which is kind of a theme for this episode now that I think about it, the weirdness of your own brain. I like that. Nothing makes you come to terms with it quite as much as when you play games in VR, virtual reality, basically anything with a headset or an Oculus Quest 
type of game console. That's something you haven't done, Joe. And I'm not trying to be like rubbing this in your face necessarily because I do want you to come <laughs> over sometime so you can play it and try it out. Mm -hmm. This is something that both my brothers are very interested in. They have purchased an Oculus Quest in the past year or so, and they're nice, so they let me try it sometimes. Mm -hmm. One of the more praised VR games has been Half-Life Alex. Of course, Valve, the company, has made a series of very popular games. They made Half-Life 1, a shooter game, which was very popular. Half-Life 2, a shooter game, even more popular. Uh, shooter game is a bit of an oversimplification, but just know it's a first-person shooter. And they made Portal 1 and 2, which are puzzle games. They actually haven't made that much stuff now that I think about it. But the stuff they had made is super well-respected. They also made, this is not Half-Life 3. That's like a game that who knows what's ever going to come out, even though people really want it to come out. They made a game that goes in between the events of Half-Life 1 and 2 and is not Half-Life 3, but just is a bit of a continuation of the story in, in other ways. That is what I've recently been playing. I would like to talk not about the game itself at all, because I don't want to spoil anything and there are plenty of great <laughs> reviews out there that they say everything I could possibly say and say it way better. So look at Half-Life Alex reviews and playthroughs if you are interested in learning more. But I'd like to talk about more about how VR can change a person's brain, not about the games themselves. Mm. For context, you're holding on to two controllers in your hand. Those become your hand in the game. Wherever you move your arms, there are your hands. And your hands are just floating. It's because if you actually had arms, they'd kind of get in the way. You couldn't see anything. So it's just you're interacting through the world through two floating hands. The ones we have, you have buttons to move your index finger only and then your three other fingers only. That's all you can do. You can press them both at once to close your hand, or you can have different combinations of your index finger open and closed and different combinations of your three non-thumb fingers open and closed. They make fancy controllers where you can control all the fingers independently, but we don't have those, so it's just that's basically what you can do. And that sounds kind of limiting, but it is shocking how quickly your brain adapts to the digital environment and adapts to the limited series of controls it has. So it's very clear you're in a video game. It's not like, oh, this is 8K and I, it looks like I'm in my room. Wow, this is so realistic. No, you're clearly in a video game. There's no question mm -hmm. about it. Things look fake. Things look digital, depending on even the art style of the game. Some games lean into this where they look very pixely and fake and on purpose. That's the art style. And some games look very realistic. And Half-Life Alex is much more on the realistic end of the spectrum. Yes, you can still tell it's a video mm -hmm. game. You're not going to mistake this for the real world anytime soon. Maybe not until like... 30 years from now. But it's amazing how quickly your brain just says, okay, this is what we do now. We have a hands where we can move two <laughs> different sets of fingers in different ways. We have the ability to teleport around. You actually can move around in the game, like walking, but because I'm standing still, that equals extreme motion sickness. The input you're seeing is quite different than what your body's actually experiencing. Uh, half of X is actually designed in such a way where it's very nice to people like me who are, can easily get motion sickness through VR. Basically, like any elevators or weird parts that do move while you're standing still, there's like just small windows so you can tell you're moving, but it's not motion sick. Anyway, the, the team did a really good job making that sort of friendly for, the, for these people. How I move, I just am on a mode where you can point to where you want to teleport, like within reason just a sort of a circle around you can decide where you want to go and then teleport there and you just blink there there's no motion there's only ever click you move over click you move over click you move over so that way yes you can move your head around but you won't your body will know that what's happening in the game lines up with what's happening in the real world and you won't feel too bad about it that's one thing you can do the other thing you can do is gravity gloves in which you can attract objects around you to your hand because it'd be actually kind of hard to lean down and actually get everything manually so you can just select the objects you want and flick them toward your hands you know you've been playing too much half-life when you do a few of the things that Owen said he's done. You either try to teleport in real life, oh. you, you, you start to try to point to where you want to go and then you realize you can't do it because it's real life. Or you see something you want to pick up that's kind of far away and you try to gravity glove. I didn't actually, you know, move my hand, do, go as far as doing the hand movement, but I started to make the hand movement to make it come to my hand and then I realized, oh, and this is... So my point is, it, it convinces your brain. It really does. And 
you might say, why does it convince your brain? Well, if you think about it, if you're, I thought of this metaphor, maybe this is another book. If you're on a telephone call with someone, you know, like in the old days, we used to be on telephone calls with someone. <laughs> yes, their, their voice is real low quality. It's like eight or 16 kilohertz and it's really bad connection and so on. But you get used to it really quickly. Your brain just says, oh, this is how this person sounds now. And it kind of starts to be like they're in the same room because you just get used to the really bad connection quality. Yes, they would sound better if they were sitting next to you. You just don't notice after a while. It's as if they're sitting next to you for all practical purposes. And it's the same thing when you're watching TV, kind of. It's like the TV isn't your entire world, but it might as well be because your brain just locks onto that and everything else in the world kind of disappears in the room, kind of disappears unless you actually look at it. So it's kind of the same thing. Your brain can get used to almost anything. And so if you put it in this world that is 3d and appears to move around and you can interact with it in limited ways it just gets used to it and then you take it off and everything seems kind of funny for a minute you're not in the post-apocalyptic world anymore which can be kind of strange so that's really in a nutshell how your brain is affected by vr man okay look i'm gonna be honest with you i think vr is cool but it also scares the crap out of me um, because I read Ready Player One and that story, if you're not familiar with it, it just takes place in the sort of near future and the world has gone to crap and everybody plays this VR game called Oasis and people learn, like, go to school through it and people, like, you don't have to tell your identity. Like, it's it's this whole thing and it just always, like, I love the story but it always scared me because I was like, we're like slowly just choosing the path of least resistance in our in our humanity because it's like let's take uh, horses versus cars, right? Horses are hard to train. Horses take a long time to train to do what you want them to do, and it takes a lot of manpower. You gotta feed them, you gotta water them, you gotta do all the things, groom them, and and put them up when you're done and. And so what did we do? We found a way to make literal little explosions inside of an enclosed metal space and make like a little room go. And that was much easier than training a horse and using a horse. And and so then we got really, really, really good at that. And so then it was a mass-produced thing. And, and so we just, as humans, constantly choose the path of least resistance, which sometimes takes a lot of work to get there, but we do. And so, I don't know, stuff like Ready Player One scares me because it's like, given the path that we're on, I think, like, okay, today, for instance, where we live, it was kind of a nasty day. If I was a human in the future and I had the option to be, well, quote unquote, be somewhere else, I don't know what I would do. I I feel like I would probably do that. And not to say it's a bad thing, but like Zachary said, it affects how you look at real life, which is scary. It's so scary to me. Um, it's sort of like when you go from, when you've driven a go-kart at a, at a fun zone or whatever, and then you go drive your real car and you're like, oh wait, this isn't how I'm supposed to be doing this. Can't slam into built things around me. Exactly. Don't do that. The path that we're on kind of scares me sometimes, but I don't know. What about you? Do you feel this way? To some extent, and I'm going to be the devil's advocate just because I kind of, A, I like messing with you and B, I just kind of am interested to hear what you have to, <laughs> to unpack okay. this argument a bit more. My devil's advocate point is, you say it's the path of least resistance and it's also the path of extreme research and development that a lot of people had to do to make cars because cars are more complicated than horses we started out with horses we didn't start out with cars so they were hard to make i wouldn't necessarily call it the path of least resistance but i get what you're saying with once they're invented they're the path of least resistance Mm -hmm. my question is well yeah but in the old days we didn't have light bulbs either so by using light bulbs is that the path of least resistance we could be in the dark but instead we choose to see stuff and keep doing stuff in our houses but normally we just have to you know lie on the ground and be in the dark i'm just Mm -hmm. curious to hear more about this kind of idea from you no that's that's a great point i think 
When I say path of least resistance, I think I, I should say path of least resistance for the consumer. I mean, obviously, it wasn't easy for, like, Henry Ford to make the assembly line and to, to get things off the ground. But once he did, it was it was easier for a consumer to that had a car to use a car than to use a horse. And so horses sort of gradually went out of both style and also function. And so when, when you say that about the light bulb, it, it's actually kind of funny because I recently heard something about, I don't know where I heard it, but I heard it and they were talking about how when the light bulb was created, sleep schedules became so like sporadic because we take the light bulb for granted, right? Like, because right now, if this was 300 years ago, I would probably be asleep right now because it's 11:14 at night and so we'd go to sleep with the sun and, and raise up with the or get up with the sun. The sun was the original light bulb. That's all you have so you have to work with it. As long as we keep innovating, we're going to keep trying to get to a point where, you know, okay, think about like we had to used to you had to go to the movies. Right? Like that's how you were entertained. And then TV happened and so then you could have TV, right? And then let's say computers then so then you could have personal entertainment by yourself, like, for you in a closed space. And then, obviously, phones happened, and so then you could have, you know, personal content on your phone. And now we're at a point where, like, that stuff is so tailored to you, it's not even funny. And you don't even have to search for it. It's just, like, served up to you. It's a scary thought to me because I feel like we're losing... (laughs) Honestly... I think what scares me the most is thinking about, like, the Wally future. No, by and large, is coming after your children, basically. It's scary, and I don't like to think about it. And maybe I'm being too paranoid. I don't know, but I, I just don't like it. And I like innovation. I love technology. Like, that's all great. But it also just, in the back of my mind, I'm like, hmm, this scares me, you know? I think what you're getting at is this really interesting argument of, yes, it's definitely hard to innovate. No question about that. It's very hard to make a car. And it was also hard to make TikTok. But once TikTok's made, TikTok's made, mm-hmm. and it only takes a few people to mess up the attention span of an entire generation. Yes, that's the obvious. There's more subtle things going on than that. That's the the one I like to pick on to show. Mm-hmm. We like to take the path of least resistance. I can sit. There was some. There's some great quote about if someone can sit alone in a room and think to themselves for ten minutes with nothing else, then that must mean they're at peace with themselves. No distracting yourself, no turning on Mm. other things to keep your mind off life's existential problems. Mm -hmm. And no podcasts, no nothing. I'm I'm bad. I always turn on podcasts. But if you can sit in a room all by yourself and just think for long periods of time, there will be some uncomfortable things that come up, maybe worries, fears, things for the future. But at least you'll deal with them. You weren't dealing with them before. You're just distracting yourself from them before. Mm -hmm. That's kind of something I try to keep in mind because I'm in the weird position where I love technology quite a bit more than I probably should. I think of it as kind of like a faucet sometimes. The correct place for the faucet to be is not turned off. That would be zero technology. The correct place to put the faucet is not all the way on because then I'm drowning in technology and drowning in non-actionable attention and garbage from the internet. The correct place is sort of something I'm always playing with where somewhere in the middle, just enough technology, just enough information, just enough input for the benefit, but not enough for the detriment. I know that technology isn't all bad. Like if we, if we think of it as a tool, like it's really not all that bad, but I think the minute that, (laughs) the minute that it starts looking more like nicotine and less like a tool, Mm -hmm. it's like, this is concerning, you know? And, And like you said, I don't know how many people I could name that I know that could sit in a room by themselves with nothing but their own thoughts for 10 minutes. And I would even struggle to do that because it's, it's not something that we're trained to do. I mean, I came to my room earlier this, this uh, evening to, I think I was eating a snack or something Mm -hmm. and I left my phone out in the common room. Feels uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
And I was like, what do I do? Like, I reached for my phone and it wasn't there. And I was like, I have to think. And so then I like grabbed my guitar and I started playing because I just, we're so afraid of ourselves. We're so afraid of boredom and I don't like it at all. Ugh, this really is an existential episode. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> oh, sorry, everybody. Right now, VR is in such a stage where it's like, haha, this big clunky headset, isn't this funny? And then it crashes in the game, mm-hmm. goes down to 10 frames per second. And now we're back on the Windows desktop. Haha, isn't this funny? And it's super <laughs> heavy and it hurts your head. That's where we are. I was thinking about the future of VR and it wouldn't take that much to make a drastic improvement. So if the headset was lighter, that's a big one as well. Imagine if it was something that like didn't seem that much different than sunglasses, for example. Mm. And if the graphics themselves were more realistic, for example, higher resolution, higher refresh rate, literally, because you can turn your head fast enough that the world cannot draw itself fast enough, and you see like just the blackness for a minute, and then it starts filling itself in. It's possible to outrun the game in the sense of if you spin around really fast, it just tra- <laughs> can't keep up, and it just draws it really kind of slowly. I mean, obviously, depending on your PC settings and so on. If you made more realistic worlds with a higher refresh rate to where you could not outrun the game, and if you added... The, the killer feature, actual hand tracking, which Oculus does have a few things they're working on with this where you can use it in some menus and things. But basically, throw away the controllers. It's just using a sensor to watch what your hands are doing and then reflecting that in the actual game. So now you can pick things up. Now you can do it. You can, anything your hands can do, you can simulate them in the game now. Mm. That, obviously, that doesn't take care of how things feel. But again, your brain gets used to not feeling things. And like, it's actually really fun to shoot guns in VR, not gonna lie. It's just satisfying. Like, there's a big obvious trigger for it. It's just like a nice haptic feedback where it vibrates depending on what type of bullets you're shooting. It's like definitely very satisfying to use a gun in VR, not gonna lie. Yeah. So, anyway, it's not hard to imagine a world where this could have a few small changes and it could become drastically more realistic to the point where we all live in the Oasis 24 hours a day. <laughs> Well, maybe we will, maybe we won't. It's not for us to know. And I will one day try VR, hopefully soon. Um, But I will one day try it, and I will give my opinion and review on this show. So please continue to tune in. Yeah, I didn't realize that this was going to become a pitch, but here's my pitch. I promise the next episode will be happier.